1: This episode is kindly sponsored by Stripe and Stair. Did you know that only 3% of the underwear market is sustainably sourced? This isn't such a great stat for a product that we wear every day, which is why I'm a long-term fan of Stripe and Stair. They are a UK-based, women-owned brand who make the best sustainably sourced and ethically made undercrackers I have ever worn, and I'm super excited to tell you about their brand new, game-changing B-Edit collection. Using the latest science in fibre technology, the entire range is 100% biodegradable. Even the lace biodegrades. Now I know what you're thinking, but don't worry, it won't biodegrade while you're wearing it. It needs soil and earthy nutrients to break down, so it will remain fully intact while you wear it and when you wash it. And it is also super long-lasting. Now, if you're already used to the comfort and quality of standard Stripe and Stare, you will not be disappointed. It's just as comfy and is made in a fully accredited and audited factory in Portugal before it travels by ground, not by air, to the UK. Revolutions start from the bottom up, so if you would like to try Stripe and Stare, I have an exclusive 20% off discount code for my listeners. Just head to stripeandstare.com and use things20 at checkout. That's stripeandstair.com and code THINGS20. Thanks very much to Stripe and Stare. Welcome back to All the Small Things with me, Venetia. I am very grateful for your patience, as I know it's been a couple of weeks since the last episode, so thank you for bearing with me, and I'm pretty sure it will have been worth the wait, because today I'm chatting to Dr. Pragya Agarwal, who is someone I've wanted to interview for quite a while. Pragya is a behavioural and data scientist, writer, speaker, and a consultant on bias, anti-racism, social inclusion, power, and privilege. She is the author of three books, including Sway, Unraveling Conscious Bias, and Wish We Knew What To Say, Talking With Children About Race, a manual for parents, carers, and educators of all backgrounds and ethnicities to talk to children about race and racism. In this episode, we focus on her latest book, Motherhood, on the choices of being a woman. It's a hybrid memoir and scientific analysis of women's fertility and an urgent and timely examination of how political ideas of womanhood and motherhood are constructed. Pragya uses her own varied experiences and choices as a woman of South Asian heritage to examine the broader societal, historical and scientific factors that drive how we think and talk about motherhood. It's an extremely honest book with Pragya interrogating themes including infertility, childbirth and reproductive justice, making a powerful and urgent argument for the need to tackle society's obsession with women's bodies and fertility in a truly intersectional way. It's one of the most important books I've read this year and I can't stop recommending it. As always, links to my guests and their books will be in the episode notes. There's absolutely loads in this interview, so let's get cracking. Here is Pragya Agarwal on All the Small Things. Pragya, I'm so thrilled to have you on All the Small Things podcast today. I'm very, very excited that we've been able to make this work. Let us begin as we always do. I would love to hear if you have any kind of morning rituals or habits that you like to practice in order to kind of ease gently into your day?
2: I'm really delighted to be here. So thank you for having me. As for morning rituals, it's really tough, you know, with small children, because the moment you get up, it's go, go, go. I usually have a big cup of coffee, step out in the garden sometimes. If the weather's nice, just stand there and look at the sky for a little bit because it really balances me. I'm not an early morning person, but if I do wake up early, I love the sunrise or I love the early morning sun and how it's spread out around the sky. And yeah, just taking some time to think about myself and think about the positive things in life.
1: Starting with positivity is always a good way to go, for sure. I'd love to hear a little bit about your childhood and where you grew up and perhaps some of your strongest memories of growing up, as I think this will give our listeners a good grounding of who you are.
2: So I grew up in India. I was born in this small town called Dehradun, which is in the foothills of the Himalayas in the north of India. That's where my father's family lived. But we moved away quite soon with my father's job. And we moved around quite a lot of places in the north of India every three years, because that's how he, his job was um, in, with the government. I mostly went to all-girls schools. My parents were really keen that we have the best education that we can. So they prioritized our education. We were three sisters. I was the eldest of them all. And um, we didn't have much. But as I said, they prioritized education. We used to live in like really small two-room houses where we would share the bedroom, all of us, or all of us slept on the same double bed, me and my sister's. And I remember when I was studying for my exams, I had put my desk in this hallway where everybody would walk past and I would just sit and study there in the middle of this hallway uh, with all my books piled around me. So I got quite used to working out and studying in the most distracting places, which probably helps now as a mother. Yeah. And so I, I grew up like that and it was a relatively happy childhood, I suppose. There's a lot of pressure to achieve academically. It's a lot of pressure I put on myself to achieve academically as well. Yeah, so that's kind of the childhood. And I loved books always.
1: That doesn't surprise <laughs> me because obviously, I mean, now I know you as someone who is incredibly intelligent, well-read. You obviously are producing books at what seems like an unimaginable rate for someone like me. So can you tell us how you became a behavioural scientist and also what this job entails, because you're the first behavioral scientist I've, I think I've ever spoken to.
2: My first degree was actually architectural engineering, which is the, the perfect combination because I was always very artistic and creative, but also had this scientific mathematical brain architecture is very much about structures and science, but also aesthetics. And I loved that. But I was also very interested in how people behave in these spaces, why they behave the way they do, how can we design spaces to affect people's behavior. I was really interested in how buildings or cities create certain kinds of patterns of behavior in people, how they also create inequalities, how they create disparities. And then I had a daughter quite young But then I got a British Council Fellowship to come here and do a master's. I went to York, University of York. I did my master's. And in that, I was, again, very much attracted to the whole idea of these mapping technologies. But seeing how these technologies were very deterministic, they didn't ever map or model people's affection or attachment to places. Then I got a scholarship to do a PhD at Nottingham, University of Nottingham. And I was a single parent then. And my PhD was very interdisciplinary. It was in geography department, but I was again interested in behavior and how behavior can be understood, mapped, how people's behavior are affected by the spaces they live in, the places they live in and how the decisions they make is influenced by all these things, but how we perceive other people is also influenced by these things. So my PhD was very interdisciplinary in computer science, philosophy, cognitive science, all these things. And my research, what underpinned was this kind of spatial behavior. So behavioral science is, I suppose, about how people behave the way they do, why they behave like that, what affects their behavior, what's the science behind it, what's the psychology behind it, but also how we can nudge people's behavior is it predetermined or is it something that's determined by society and societal effects so that is how my books are all about people's behaviors and people's actions and decisions that influence systems and societies
1: it leads us really nicely on to talking about your latest book motherhood i am just kind of blown away by it i think it's i think it's amazing It's part memoir, and it's really courageous and really brave. So I'd love to hear what led you to writing it.
2: Thank you so much for saying that. Because as you know, my first book was about unconscious bias and the prejudices we have. And I was thinking and reflecting a lot on reproductive justice and reproductive health in our society. We were having more conversations about choices that we have and don't have, like abortion and all the laws around it that are changing. I hadn't really talked openly about my experiences, my journey, even my first childbirth, but also infertility and everything else. And I just began to realize that the less we talk about it, the more shame and stigma we create around these. And I was seeing more motherhood books come out. And I realized we don't see many intersectional approaches to mothering and motherhood, but also the choices that women have to make at different stages of their lives. So I really wanted to write about that what it means to be a woman, what it means to be a mother, what the pressures there are on women, how we make these choices, but also how we are placed in the society affects these choices that are on offer to us. But then I realized I can't write about such an intimate experience without bringing my lens into it. So it is is hybrid memoir. I do talk about my experience, but only to the extent that it's a springboard talking about the wider universal aspect to it. Things that each of us have to experience in our lives at some stage or the other.
1: I love how you've combined memoir with this incredible intersectional approach. I learned so, so much from it. You mentioned the term there, reproductive justice. How would you define, and maybe this is too big a question to to dive into, but how would you define reproductive justice?
2: It is a big question, but simplistically speaking, it's that our reproduction Choices are determined by society and constrained by society. So we feel that we have autonomy and agency, but we don't really often. Our choices are determined by what's on offer to us or what society tells us. So the reproductive justice will be justice for everybody, not in a predetermined template, but depending on where the person is, what class, caste, race, ethnicity, gender identity, everything, where do they come from, and how. this this laws and legal framework that we have, how that affects them in different sections of society. And whether these laws that we have on offer or the choices that we are offering to everybody, are they the right ones for everybody? Are they the same for everybody? So justice would mean that people have the same choices, no matter what their status in society.
1: What a succinct answer. Thank you so much. (laughs) let us start talking about intersectionality because like you've mentioned this is one of the main focuses of your book and how marginalized people are consistently left out not only in terms of representation and the conversation about motherhood but also fascinatingly the data and research so can you tell us about the illusion of the data that is out there when it comes to motherhood?
2: Yes, I think there is a lack of data, intersectional data. Even as a term woman or as a term mother, it's so homogenized that we often assume that everybody's the same. First of all, there's a lack of global perspective on it. So we often don't have data for different parts of the world. There's a lot of research because of funding in US and UK and other Western countries. We have to think about not just white women, we have to think about women who are not white or women women of color. But within this group of BME or women of color, we need to desegregate the data even more. And then often that's not done. So when I was looking at infertility data or IVF data, there was really not that much data about how black and brown women what they experienced during IVF cycles, how many are successful, what are the limitations and constraints, all those kind of things. So we need to disaggregate data according to different parameters like socioeconomic or ethnicity. And then we don't have much data at all about transgender community and the non-binary community because we know that there's so much bias built into our healthcare domain, especially when it comes to trans health. And they don't often have the opportunities or the, the choices on offer to them And I was looking at data and there was very little data about transgender community, about how these decisions or these laws affect them and what kind of barriers they face. So, yes, there is a lack of intersectionality and disaggregation of data, which gives us a very limited picture of the reproductive justice framework globally.
1: Do you feel hopeful that there will be more data that is truly intersectional in the future or do we have a long way to go?
2: I think it's a really good question. I think it's still very slow progress in that regard. We are still very focusing on binary or black and white discourses rather than a more nuanced discussion or discourse around these issues of what it means to be a woman, what it means to be a mother, what is the reproductive framework or justice that's on offer. A lot of these decisions are made by middle-class white heterosexual men who are not thinking about intersectionality sometimes. We're having more conversations around it. So that's a good first step. Uh, we need more stories of people from the marginalized backgrounds and marginalized communities about their lived experiences. Other people speak on their behalf. So we need to give more platform to people who are on the fringes. And one of the things I wanted to do through this book was to say, actually, as a brown woman, this is what I went through. And so as a brown woman, if you've had some similar experiences, then your stories are valid, then you don't have to carry the shame and stigma, then you can talk openly about it. And the more we talk about it, the more easier it gets for other people to share their stories as well and to say, I'm not alone. And in the academic community, I do think that we need to think about disaggregating the data more, thinking about data bias more, about how bias affects the data that we have on how we're using the data. Bigger organizations like United Nations and OECD, they need to collect more data in countries where we sometimes just see empty spreadsheets because they haven't even collected the data for it. So how are we going to create a framework when we just don't even know the picture that's existing in the ground at the moment? So yes, yeah, it's slow, but the more we talk about it, the better it gets.
1: Absolutely. We define
2: women based
1: on whether or not they embrace or reject motherhood, whether they can give birth or not. And in the book, you write about how the societal pressure placed on women to reproduce is rooted in white supremacy. Please, can you
2: explain how? I feel that a lot of these pressures on women, pushing them into this domestic role, that this is their role as a mother, that they are destined to become a mother, it's rooted in this kind of patriarchal framework, which says men are supposed to be like this, women are supposed to be like this. It is rooted in this kind of duality that's been promoted through Greek antiquities or through history, which says men are more reason rational. They should be responsible for the bigger decisions in life. Women are more nurturing. Women are more maternal. Women should look at the domestic side of things. This is their role. This is what they're good at. It, of course, traps both men and women, but it also creates this view that there is some innate biological aspect to men and women that cannot be changed in life ever and not because of society. And I think patriarchal frameworks are rooted in white supremacy in the way because, as we know about great replacement theory, this moral panic around birth rates falling or the fact that more women are not giving birth is always been rooted in the fact that there's certain kind of women not giving birth. There's certain kind of women should have more children from the great replacement theory, it was this panic that women of color are hyper fertile and they can have lots of children very easily, while white women were not having enough children. So one day the better race will be replaced by people of color. So yes, I think it is trying to keep women in a certain kind of role because it's easier to oppress them it's easier to maintain hierarchies it's easier to maintain the status if we keep believing in these view of there are certain masculine roles and there are certain feminine roles i found it
1: really interesting learning about this in your book and then linking it to climate justice and climate change because often when we we talk about the solutions to climate change people will say oh it's an issue of overpopulation people in the global south are having too many kids and obviously that is are so harmful. And also, that's not the way that we're going to solve climate change. We're in this disastrous situation because of racial capitalism, not because the people who are doing the least harm to the planet are having too many children. And just in the same way, that is rooted in ultimately eugenics.
2: Exactly. And I completely agree with you. It's ultimately about these false scientific myths, eugenic theories that is rooted in essentialism. It's about who is better and who is worse, and it's, it's to justify oppression.
1: In your book, you write about how motherhood has been commodified by reality TV, manfluences, and celebrity culture. How damaging do you think the commodification of motherhood is?
2: It's a strange paradox, isn't it? Because on one hand, motherhood is being idolised and is being used to commodify But there's still so little value attached with mothering and motherhood. It's still not given its due reward. Women face motherhood penalties in workplaces. It's not seen like you're contributing to the economy or to society by being a mother. You're just a mother. So I think the whole rise of momfluencer was kind of a backlash against it, that women found this platform that they could say, okay, being just a mother is not something that I need to be ashamed of, so I can do something about it. But it's now grown into this kind of industry where it becomes a notion of idealized motherhood about what is the right way to be a mother. And this is the right way to be a mother, feed them organic food or wear this kind of clothes or portray this kind of ideal image and we know from research how harmful these kind of idealized imagery on Instagram and Facebook or Twitter especially on Instagram is because it creates an aspirational lifestyle for people and they are always comparing to it and if they fall short there is this sense of guilt and shame that i'm not a good enough mother because i'm not doing enough and already motherhood is so intrinsically tied with guilt because you always being told by society, you do this or do that, or this is the right way to be a mother. And I think this just adds a really extra pressure on women. I think it's ultimately also related to this toxic notion of white feminism, because a lot of momfluencers initially, at least, were white middle class women. So there's a certain kind of woman who's idolized in the whole notion of motherhood. And I think that creates extra pressure, but it also pushes certain people even more to the fringes because they don't fit the norm. No, they don't have two children or they don't bring up their children in the right way or their face doesn't fit the right profile of what a mumfluencer or mother should look like.
1: It does feel like a very toxic space. For listeners who would like to dive deeper into this topic, please do listen back to the episode with Kathy Ray, who is... An amazing person and talks about motherhood from a disabled perspective. So I would really recommend that.
0: Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage
2: that may be right for you. More at uh1.com.
1: You write about how society sees ambivalence when it comes to motherhood as weakness, indecisiveness and selfishness. You'll change your mind is a phrase child free people are often told. Is the burning desire women are told that they will experience when they change their mind just a myth?
2: Yes, ambivalence. I think as women, sometimes we're not given the space to be ambivalent about anything. We internalize this message that women, they are led by their emotions, not by facts. They're not very logical. So often we internalize this, that we need to show that we are quite rational, logical people, that we know our mind, because that's the way to be successful. That's the masculine ideal. And I'm putting that in quote marks that we are aspiring to. And so we often don't allow ourselves the space to be ambivalent. I think having a child or not is such a big question, and and our society puts a lot of pressure on it. And as we know, from a young age, or often with women, this pressure is much, much more than on men, because that's linked intrinsically to what your maternal feminine role is in society, to have children, to have a family. And so when women are ambivalent about that choice, the window that often we have to be fertile is smaller in a lot of cases. And there's not much transparency and clarity of data on it. So often we don't even know. There are all these myths circulating around that after 13 or after 35, it becomes difficult or there's a fertility cliff. So there's a panic around it as well. So there are two things that working at at the same time. There's this notion of body clock, but there's also the societal pressure where people think if you're not having children, then you're not really being a real woman or you're not fulfilling your destiny or the role that you're supposed to play. So I think that is why women don't have the space or the time to be ambivalent. They cannot just say, actually, I don't want children or they can say, I'm not really entirely sure about it because they're always worried that time's going to run out Or this pressure that's on me from society, what if I'm making the wrong choice right now? And that is why I talk about choice as being so contextual, because often when we think we have the choice or the autonomy or agency, we don't really, because we're still being pressured by society into telling us what the right choices are. And so we don't even trust our instincts or our opinions or views or feelings often
1: particularly with motherhood, it does feel like ambivalence can't be a thing. It needs to be justified by a specific reason. And I I really appreciate, I've seen you tweeting recently about how you can just not want something and you don't have to justify it.
2: Yeah, I think that's spot on because it's always this kind of caveat oh, I don't want children because of that, or often people presume that they, people don't want children because of some reason, like they're preferring their career or they want more independence or that they're just not maternal enough or they just want a lifestyle that doesn't suit with children. We don't really need the justification. It can just be a choice we make for ourselves and our bodies without having to tell anybody why we are doing that. We sometimes might not even know for sure why we're making the decision, but lots of other choices we make in our lives, we don't have to justify for other people. But it seems like society has so much taken this personal, very personal, intimate decision that women often have to make. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. Let's talk about fertility, as this is something that you write about extensively in the book. I found it absolutely sort of jaw-dropping that the World Health Organization classifies infertility as a disease. What are some of the myths that we're told about fertility? And is it just another business and something that's yet again been hijacked by capitalism?
2: Yeah, there's a lot of truth in it when you start thinking about it, about how it's become really big business. And I think that is why this moral panic around women's fertility is created because it suits our society and for capitalism in terms of um, times running out or your body clock. So you have to freeze your eggs now, and we know how expensive egg freezing is as compared to sperm freezing. We also don't really talk about what infertility does as a mental and physical health on women. We don't talk about how black and brown women or women from lower socioeconomic classes, how they are affected by infertility. We know that it's very expensive to go through infertility cycles, IVF cycles, especially because of the NHS post lottery depends on where you live. Again, that comes back to the question of reproductive justice because not everybody has the same opportunities on offer. There are different rules for everybody depending on where you live. For instance, we already had One child, I had one, my husband didn't, but still, depending on where we live, we couldn't get IVF cycle on the NHS, while in other parts of the country, it's allowed one cycle. So that also comes back to justice, that is not an equitable framework. But yeah, I mean, the body clock myths I've written about is we don't have transparent data about it. Also, we don't talk about men's body clock, although we assume that men can just have children till they're 70. But I wrote an article recently where I looked at more data about how men's fertility also suffers a lot in their 30s and 40s. We need to at least have a conversation about it, about how it's affected by alcohol, drugs, all the other conditions. We also don't have much data about how stress is related to fertility. So I think all these myths circulate about what you should or shouldn't do, eat pineapple or eat this or that, and there's no clear data and evidence to to tell us why we are doing these things and why we should do these things.
1: And I'm wondering also, do we have this preconceived, nonsensical idea that, women immediately lose their looks and their charm and everything after the age of 30 because they're less fertile, whereas men remain silver foxes and they age like fine wine. Do, do you think we have that idea of them because we have this false idea that they are fertile until they're at least 70?
2: We know ageism is a big thing in our society, but we also know that age and gender intersect to create a heightened effect. Women face, ageism, much more. We know that over the age of 35, any pregnancy is called a geriatric pregnancy. That is a term that is used. There's a big difference between how older men and older women are treated in a society. But also historically or culturally or evolutionarily, women's value is associated with giving birth. You know, evolutionary speaking, this was their role, maternal, the Although that's not true, that's also a myth that's been created to reinforce this inequality, that men were the hunter-gatherers and women stayed at home and looked after children. That's not how most of our societies worked, really. This has been created, these roles. It's like women are not able to give birth or not fertile anymore. What is their value to society? That is a question. That is subconsciously always there, that they lose their value to society. And I think we need to tackle this on so many fronts. We need to tackle it on the ageism fronts. We need to tackle the language that seeps into medical and healthcare. We need to tackle the myths of body clock and have really clear evidence about what's happening to bodies and that bodies are not all built on templates. And we need to really tackle these kind of masculine, feminine roles that are in our society and what men and women are supposed to do and not do in our society. And unless we tackle gender inequality on all these fronts, we can't really tackle these ageist assumptions that are dealt out to women.
1: It feels like we've been fed this rhetoric of women are designed to reproduce, whereas men are designed to have sex. How do you think this informs how society views desire and also how genders conform to that.
2: Yeah, I think we're talking more and more about this kind of gender gap in sexuality and and desire. We've always assumed women are the passive ones and men are the agentic active ones who have higher sex drive, so they they don't they're not in control of their actions if they do anything, which has justified a lot of sexual harassment and abuse for a very long time and so That is why we also give women and young girls the message about how they should protect themselves rather than teaching men to control their impulses as well. But also if you look at, I talk about it in motherhood, the way we teach um, biology sometimes has been really rooted in these very harmful roles as well. So the way fertilization is taught, egg is seen as this passive thing that just lies around waiting for the sperm to come and find it and discover it and rescue it. And that is not the truth. They have equal roles. And actually, we know from research now that egg actively chooses the sperm, which is best for fertilization, procreation, for genetic uh, transference. And we have created this notion that testosterone is related to higher sex drives. But we don't always know that it's only men who have higher testosterone. And it varies and fluctuates as well. Sometimes some women can have a higher level of testosterone as well. So it again comes back to how we see men and women on a template. But yes, that creates this kind of desire gap where women, first of all, are not comfortable talking about their sexuality. They're seen as sexual beings, but only to serve a certain kind of purpose and role. And I mean, it's a huge question, isn't it? There's so much we can talk about in there.
1: I'm wondering if you've watched Sex Education and if you've, I can't remember how old your your eldest daughter is, but I'm wondering if you've seen it and and what you think about it, because I feel like it's broken a lot of boundaries when it comes to this kind of thing.
2: I loved it. I really loved the way they talked about it and how honest they were. And my oldest daughter must have watched it. But we did talk about some of the things when she was younger, when she was a teen. But I do think that some of the things we hold create so much taboos around certain topics. And we create a notion of shame around certain topics and around sexuality as well. We don't give our children the proper sex education, the proper language to be able to talk about their bodies and their desires. I do think it starts from a young age. Sometimes we don't even equip our children to know what their body parts are. We couch them into some metaphors. And I think it starts that process of being shameful of your body, that we can't even say the correct term for it. I really loved that program in the way it broke some of these taboos. And I think some of these taboos and silence around it is because we are uncomfortable about these things ourselves, because maybe the way we were brought up or the way we didn't talk about it and honestly and openly, but we need to normalize these conversations. And I think the more openly and honestly we talk with our children, the better equipped they would be to be, say, this is my body. These is these are where my boundaries are. Mm, I
1: completely agree with you. In the book, you write about the difference between motherhood and mothering, and I found this really, really interesting. So can you tell listeners about your the difference in your definition of mothering and motherhood?
2: We talk about motherhood often in the framework of giving birth, maternal, maternal instinct, maternal bond also comes from the moment you give birth to your child, a certain hormonal bond is created because of your hormones. You feel this connection with your child. But we don't talk enough about mothering because families can be created in different ways. We don't necessarily have to give birth to become a mother. And when we focus so much on maternal bond, we lose the sense of this bond that is created slowly and gradually over the weeks and months after a child has been born because of the act of mothering them, because of the act of looking after them, caring for them, because the act of being there for them. And that kind of back and forth, I I say in the book, the dance that you do between the infant and the mother that creates this two-way process. It's not just a one-way process from the mother and the hormones that they have because of whether they've given birth or not. So I think the act of mothering is so much more broader and all-encompassing and more intersectional than when we talk about motherhood.
1: You write, in the end, it was being a mother that has been my saving grace, allowing me to reconcile my different selves. I found this ending part of the book so beautiful. So I'm wondering what has been the biggest lesson you've learned since becoming a mother?
2: I feel like I've been mothering for almost 23 years, so almost much more than half of my life. Uh, So I don't remember a time when I wasn't a mother. But I I think that I haven't always loved it. I think, honestly, it's okay to say that we don't always love being a mother. There are times when you regret it. There are times when you feel like, I can't take it anymore. There are times when you feel trapped. There are times when you feel angry. But I think it has really taught me is that my identity as a mother is a big part of my identity, but that's not just my only identity. And it's my different selves, my multiple identities, that can coexist with each other, that I don't have to justify any other identities taking priority. So if I'm saying I'm writing at the moment, I'm a writer, I'm a speaker... That part of my identity as a professional person can sit very harmoniously with me being a mother. That doesn't mean that I'm prioritizing my children less or I'm giving them less value. I think sometimes as a mother, we are supposed to act in a certain way. We are never allowed to show ambivalence. Even as a parent, we are not allowed to say, I love it most of the time. I don't love it all the time. And for a long time, I believed that I had to put my children first all the time if I had to be a good mother. I carried this weight of trying to be a good mother for a very long time. And in the end, I realized it's how I define it, what a good mother means to me and to my children. And that this notion of motherhood guilt is something that society and patriarchy imposes on us and by conforming to it we are buying into this so i think we need to move past it to be able to i think get away from the shackles of patriarchy patriarchal oppression as well
1: that space for self definition when it comes to mothering feels well sounds very very freeing i think that's incredible advice how would you feel about doing a quick fire round with me
2: Oh gosh, scary, but let's go for it.
1: <laughs> Quick fire with pancake. Wake up early or have a lion?
2: Have a lion, always. <laughs>
1: Tea or coffee? Coffee. Pancakes or waffles?
2: Ooh, tough one. Pancakes?
1: In the trees or by the sea?
2: Oh, by the sea. I love the water.
1: Fresh flowers or houseplants?
2: Houseplants.
1: Twitter or Instagram.
2: Oh gosh, I think I prefer Twitter. I don't have to put in pictures.
1: (laughs) Fiction or non-fiction?
2: That's a really tricky one, but I read a lot of non-fiction, especially when I'm writing, so I would have to say non-fiction right now.
1: Podcasts or Netflix?
2: Oh, that's a tricky and a difficult one. I love this podcast, so everybody should listen to this. (laughs) But Netflix, perhaps.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Sunrise or sunset? I think I know what you're going to say for this one.
2: So I love the sunrise when I can be there, um, but I love the sunset if I'm near the sea.
1: Nice. And finally, routine or spontaneity?
2: Spontaneity. My brain doesn't really handle or do routine very well.
1: Okay, final few questions. What is your one non-negotiable daily self-care habit?
2: A big cup of coffee in the morning. I do need a coffee, otherwise I cannot function. Routine is difficult for me. So there's nothing like every day, but like dog walks sometimes or having space just 10 minutes for myself head space hiding away in my office. But coffee, certainly caffeine.
1: I feel validated anytime anyone says coffee <laughs> is their non-negotiable <laughs> daily self-care habit because it's mine as well. Okay, final question. What is one thing you hope your future self will have achieved?
2: You know, I always um, had this thing inside me since I was young that when I go, nobody will remember me, that I would not leave any kind of legacy behind. <laughs> and I think just if I've made any little change in people's mindset or if I've achieved any kind of equality for somebody or if I've made people whose voices are not heard, that they have the space to talk about their lives if I've questioned some of the harmful status cause in our society if I've done that I would feel like that's that's something I've achieved
1: you you have absolutely done that honestly I cannot stop recommending this book motherhood I encourage everyone to read it and I am so looking forward to your next book and to the rest of your work and you should feel incredibly proud. And thank you so much for being here on this podcast. I'm really, really grateful for you and your work.
2: Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for everything that you do
1: thank you so much for listening to this episode i would absolutely love to hear what you thought of it you could leave me a review on itunes or you could pop me a message directly on instagram at atst podcast. if you have someone in your life who you think might enjoy this episode please do share it directly with them talking to your pals and loved ones about this podcast really helps get the word of the show out there and i am extremely grateful for anyone who is supporting this show I'll be back soon with the final episode of this series. Until then, I hope you have a wonderful day. Bye-bye.
0: Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time.